Welcome to Next Normal, the podcast that is reimagining capitalism and exploring the ways that money can do so much more than just make more money. Here is your host, the co-founder of the Global Impact Investing Network, Ahmed Buri. Hello, and welcome to Episode 7 of Next Normal. On this podcast, we shine a light on the wide variety of approaches that are driving progress towards the next normal for our global economic system and for our world. Those efforts for change are taking many forms, and one of the most exciting is the way that narratives are driving change. Our guest today is right at the center of that trend as part of a team that is reshaping our global narratives. Holly Gordon works at Participant Media as the Chief Impact Officer a different type of CIO than what most people are familiar with, but certainly one that's just as important. Participant is the leading media company dedicated to creating entertainment that inspires audiences to engage in positive social change. They've produced more than 100 films, including the internationally acclaimed Best Picture winner Spotlight and the Best Documentary winner An Inconvenient Truth. Just last month, their film Judas and the Black Messiah was nominated for the Academy Awards Best Picture and won for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, In my humble opinion, it was incredibly well-deserved. Before joining Participant, Holly co-founded Girl Rising, the global campaign for girls' education, and she was an executive producer of the film by that same name. We've wanted to have Holly in our podcast for a long time, and I'm so glad it's happening now. Holly, welcome. Thanks, Ahmed. It is so nice to be here with you and to be on this podcast, which I have been listening to avidly and have really loved your guests. So it's an honor to be among them. Oh, well, thank you. It's an honor to have you here. I've so enjoyed getting to know you over the past year, and I'd like to begin on a personal note. You have a fascinating and varied background. You know, Earlier in your career, you worked in journalism, then eventually you started Girl Rising. Can you tell us a little bit about your path and how it has shaped your view on the importance of narrative change in relation to broader social change? Yeah. So my journalism story actually started with a real interest in college in foreign policy and foreign service. I really wanted to be a diplomat. And unfortunately, I failed the U.S. foreign policy service exam. <laughs> so so I, having failed that, I went to India with a friend and traveled around for about four months. And I packed a typewriter in my backpack. And every night I would sit down and I would type what I saw. I would type what I was seeing because I thought if I could tell those stories to my friends at home, they wouldn't, they number one, wouldn't believe it, but then they would also have a sense of this extraordinary country that I was getting to know myself. And I realized in this sort of epiphany that, oh, there's a career that you can do that. You can tell stories to close gaps of understanding. And so that was uh, my path towards journalism. I moved right back to New York. I slept on my best friend's couch for three months and I interviewed for tons and tons of journalism jobs and ended up getting a job as the assistant to the executive producer at ABC News, working literally across a sort of gulf of our desks faced each other with Peter Jennings, who was the anchor for the ABC News at that time. And the work that I did at ABC that really got me interested in how stories are a path to create change. So every night as we were considering what to put on the news, the goal was to raise awareness about you know, important new medical breakthroughs or to create empathy around a refugee crisis or a hurricane or a tornado. It was designed to get the attention of policymakers in Washington, D.C., to pass new legislations to make injustice more just. And so 
I became really, really interested in how stories create connection and how stories drive change. No, that's something that I've learned to appreciate more and more just in terms of how we think about drivers of social change and the different ways in which data and messages play a role in influencing how we think. You know, I, I wanted to kick off with talking a little bit about what we generally start with, which is by examining the underlying problem in our global economic system. From your perspective as someone who shapes and changes narratives, what is our economic system's fundamental problem from that perspective? When I think about the stories we've told ourselves from the past, let's say, 500 years, since the rise of the printing press, since the rise of scientific exploration, I'm struck by a couple of things. I'm struck by the extractive nature of today's economic system, an idea of winner takes all, that more is better, that our natural resources are both free and unlimited, and about the linearity and sort of hierarchical nature of extractive business models, and that we are reaching the limits of what our planet can take. We know that. And we're also starting to see, and we've seen obviously over the last year with the pandemic, how over time, a system that's based on both extraction and cheaper and cheaper labor creates gulfs of inequality that actually tear the very fabric of our social contract with each other. So a democracy only works when everyone believes that the democracy is working for them. And so when you have huge gulfs between haves and have nots that are only getting bigger over time, you have larger and larger swaths of people who just feel like the current system is not working for them. And so whether or not we like the economic system, the fact that it's not working for so many people means that the very structure of our systems of government are in jeopardy. And I think we've seen that interactivity, that intersection, not just in the United States, uh, where you and I are both based, but around the world, as we see rises of autocratic leaders, you know, autocratic governments who promise more for the underserved and may never deliver that. But just the promise is enough because people are are just frustrated with what they see as a system that's not working for them. I absolutely agree with this need to shift the way our system is designed and to you know, change some of the fundamental drivers of how we think about you know, what economic progress looks like, you know, what success looks like, and, and how we think about some of these fundamental kind of narratives and just belief structures that underpin the system. And, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about you know, how you use storytelling as a medium. You and your team at Participant Media are operating with the belief that compelling storytelling can be a pathway for systemic social change. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about participants' vision and uh, this theory of change? If you think about how our systems are created, they're really created from the policies and the institutions and the laws that govern our lives. And those policies and the practices, right, all of our practices. And those laws, policies, and practices are all based in, in stories that we've told ourselves, that this way is better than that way. And so when I think about um, root cause of anything, the fundamental driver for change is shifting beliefs. So shifting the stories that people are telling themselves. And this is really what we do at Participant, which is we tell big stories that reach global audiences and either accelerate or call into question narratives that we've taken for granted. So you mentioned the top of the broadcast 
uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which tells the story of the Black Panther movement in the late 1960s. And the Black Panthers in the history books that I read was a terrorist organization, an enemy of the government, an uprising that the government valiantly tried to quash. But when you go back in history and you look at what the Black Panthers actually did, they were running the first free breakfast programs for their community. They were providing after-school programs for the children in their neighborhoods and health programs for members of their community. Things that the government weren't providing, the Black Panthers were providing. And when you start to look at the Panthers with that lens, you see that they were foundational contributors to the Black activism that we've seen uh, play out in the streets today. And so when I watched that movie for the first time, Amit, I can't tell you how I felt almost betrayed by my education because the belief that I'd had in the goodness of the US government was shifted by this new understanding that actually there was a totally different perspective to this moment in history and that whoever owns the history tells the tale. And so as we look at to our systems, we need to be asking ourselves, is the story that more is better the right story for us to believe. And again and again at participants, sort of bringing us back to participants, we tell stories of courageous people who see a, a way to make a different future and speak truth to power. So whether it's, you mentioned uh, an inconvenient truth in Al Gore, really seeing the devastating um, effects of, of climate change and raising the alarm 16 years ago with an inconvenient truth in a way that I believe was cataclysmic for the world, pushing new understanding of the threats that we face. Or uh, whether it's, you know, Malala Yousafzai, we made uh, Hinemi Malala, right? A 13-year-old girl in the center of Pakistan who stood up and said, wait, it's not okay that girls can't be educated. Again and again, we tell stories about regular people who seize their agency, speak truth to power, and argue for a different way. And that's actually what we need more of across the world, is we need more folks to be thinking, okay, what's the different way and how am I going to follow that path forward? Well, and one of the things that I think people can wonder about storytelling is, you know, is storytelling alone enough? And how do you connect storytelling with concrete action? Um, and I know from my familiarity with your work that this is one of the things that you actually do and, and you're, you've become quite strategic about it. Can you talk a little bit about how you translate that, you know, what could be a very passive experience of sitting in a theater or these days sitting at home, you know, immersing in some you know, incredible kind of like you know, content you know, in the form of a movie? And how do you translate that into behavioral change? Well, so the way we do it at Participant is very particular, which is we're really a partnerships organization. So we partner with the artists who bring us the, the films that they want to make because they have a, you know, artists, I believe, artists and entrepreneurs are the two sort of categories of people who are seeing around corners, right? They see what's possible before the rest of us do. And sometimes they see what's problematic before the rest of us do. Um, and they help us see, uh, particularly artists, they help to make the invisible visible. And so we take the films that our filmmakers have made and we connect them to the activists who are on the front line of the change that we seek to make. And so that's really um, what we try to do always is to tie the art of the film to the frontline activists who are trying to make a difference. And I'll give you a very specific example of that, which is the Oscar award-winning film we made with Alfonso Cuaron called Roma that was released two years ago on Netflix. And Alfonso's story was his childhood in Mexico. It was the story of growing up and having his parents go through a really wrenching divorce at the same time that there was a revolution going on in Mexico. And so it's the sort of story of those two parallels unfolding. And at the center of the story uh, is Alfonso's nanny, a domestic worker named Cleo. 
And we created a campaign around the rights of domestic workers. So often working in homes unseen and one of the last category of workers that are not protected by policy. And so we partnered with CASE, an organization in Mexico, and with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, uh, run by iGen Poo, here in the United States, to create a campaign to raise visibility about domestic workers' rights and their lack of protection, and then to push folks who wanted to get involved in the campaign to ask for policy change. So in both Mexico and the United States, we ended up meeting with leaders in government. Um, and in Mexico, the Roma effect, as it was called in Mexico, hmm. helped to push through legislation that now protects 2 million domestic workers um, across, uh, across Mexico. So we try to connect the story with the leaders who are leading the change and target that activity to the policy or the change we seek to make. Well, and I think it's also important to highlight that as we record this, one of the big debates in the United States is around an infrastructure bill, but it also includes the care economy defined as like social infrastructure, you know, different from bridges and roads and factories and whatnot. And it's, I can see a through line back to some of the work that you guys did around, you know, uh, advancing the visibility of domestic workers and their role to some of the things that are covering headlines as we speak uh, today. And that's that's totally correct, Amit. And, you know, sometimes it seems so simple, but stories can really make complex issues personal. And that is what happened with Roma, which is that you can't watch that movie without having an empathetic response and taking this really complex sort of government policy issue around what protections do we give domestic workers in the United States and boil it down to a human question, which is work with dignity. How can the people who care for us, how are we not caring for them? I think it's so powerful. And, and one of the things that you know, we often think about in my day job and at running the Global Impact Investing Network is as we promote this concept of investing in a different way and using capital to advance social and environmental progress, you know, how do we understand and quantify our own impact in propagating ideas and a shift in thinking around the world? Could you talk about how you've thought about that for your campaigns? Um, they're so broad in scope. You know, your movies reach so many people. But how do you think about understanding your own impact? It really comes down to strategic thinking at the campaign level. And so how you build a campaign, so your inputs always drive your outputs. And it's no different when you're when you're campaigning. So we always have a major gift, which is our movies reach zeitgeist. You know, our movies are, are released and they often create water cooler conversations. To me, I can't measure that, but that is impact. So the fact that people um, are talking about Judas and the Black Messiah and they're seeing it as a piece of entertainment is invaluable. But on our impact team, what we do is we look at each piece of content individually and we think about how can we craft a campaign that is the most strategic and targeted for this piece of content. And so it really depends on where an issue is in terms of people's awareness and understanding. So if it's really early, our impact campaign might be built around um, creating awareness with important key constituents. And then we measure whether or not we did reach those constituents and how their behavior changed afterwards. Or if the movie is more targeted in its message, or we know what outcome we're seeking to make, we might really double down on a certain geography or a certain piece of policy. So a good example of that is the film Dark Waters that we made with uh, Mark Ruffalo and Anne Hathaway, Bill Pullman and others. Todd Haynes directed it, came out about uh, two years ago. And Dark Waters tells the story of 
Um, it's a caper about a, a lawyer who's working on behalf of DuPont originally, um, but starts to, to discover that DuPont is actually in making Teflon, poisoning the community around their plant. Uh, and people are getting sick. And this lawyer um, starts what turns out to be a 30-year fight. His name is Rob Ballot. He was played by Mark Ruffalo, and he's still at it. But what his fight was to protect communities from what's called PFAS, forever chemicals. And so with our Dark Waters campaign, we looked for states where PFAS were having an outsized negative effect. And we focused our efforts primarily on Colorado and North Carolina, and also on the U.S. government, on Congress. And so we created a campaign that partnered with community organizations across, I'll take North Carolina as a good example, where we used screenings and convenings to bring together the frontline activists that were working to ban forever chemicals and push PFAS legislation in North Carolina, use the film as glue to bring them together and to build momentum. And from screening to screening to screening, we built that momentum, we built deeper connections, and ultimately the Attorney General of North Carolina has filed suit against Shemores, which is now the new name for DuPont, and there's been more legislation on PFAS, more action on PFAS than ever before in history in the wake of dark waters, both in North Carolina and Colorado, but also at the national level and, and in the EU. And so it's by connecting the content to activists and targeting policy that you can start to actually create the energy and momentum to make the change we seek to make. It's an incredibly powerful example. And, and I want to pick up on the theme of time. You, you talked about you know, the um, the lawyer who'd worked on this for 30 years, um, you know, in, who was profiled in the, the movie. And you mentioned earlier an inconvenient truth coming out 16 years ago, um, which, which I do think was a huge event for awareness around climate change um, and really brought it to the forefront, you know, um, for many people who had not been paying attention in that way. But we're also still, you know, battling climate change and reckoning with, you know, kind of the way that we can sustain this planet. How do you think about the durability, you know, of a campaign? And how do you keep urgency front and center for something that is like, that because it's systemic, it's, you know, has to be long lasting. You know, these aren't things where we can just flip a switch and change the way systems work. So it's a great question, Amit, and it actually has several parts. The first part I would say is that storytelling can have an immediate effect and then it can have a long-term effect. And the immediate effect, for example, is when you can take the high energy release moment of a piece of content and harness what we call strategic wins. And what we've seen again and again is that, you know, we went to Mexico with Roma, but CASE and the other organizations that have been working across um, Mexico on domestic workers' rights, they've been working for decades to secure rights for domestic workers. They had the legislation all written. They had all of the relationships within the Mexican government, but the catalytic effect of a big piece of content like Roma and the hometown pride of Alfonso Poirón winning the Academy Award, that was the tipping point. And it's the same for all of our campaigns. The work that is the systemic change work that folks like you are doing, that has none of the sort of glitz and glamour of Hollywood, that is the work that we can help to tip because we can create these catalytic moments. So that is the sort of strategic win and the catalytic effect of the visibility and sort of the Hollywood sparkle that a, a big piece of, of content can make. The flip side also is, you know, when I was building Girl Rising, I was in front of lots of different audiences, and sometimes I would be in front of climate audiences. And I would always ask, 
How many of you got started in the climate movement because you watched An Inconvenient Truth? And Amit, a third of the crowd would always raise their hand. A third of the crowd changed the life trajectories after seeing that movie. And I like to call that the dandelion effect of content, which is like when you take a dead dandelion and you blow on it as a kid, like all those little seeds sprinkle and then your parent gets mad because that's more dandelions for them to get rid of later. But that is the kind of effect that a great piece of content can have, which is it can unlock a sense of purpose inside someone that they may not act on for a month a year, two or three years, but the seed has been planted and the journey has started. And that can be the long-term impact of catalytic content. Yeah, that absolutely resonates with me. And I, you know, someone once described kind of like how you think about social changes, you can be working on something you know, for decades. And then there's these short windows of opportunity, you know, open up and then there's an awareness, you know, for where the world's paying attention to your issue. And, and I can see the catalytic effect of movies and content in creating those windows and, and kind of opening them up in a very strategic way. Yeah, I like to say that change happens invisibly and then it happens all at once. And so it's like um, when you're at an amusement park and there's a, that bucket when you're with your kids and there's a bucket and it's getting drip, 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 drip above the wave pool or whatever. And then suddenly the last drip comes and whoosh, your kids get showered with the water. That's sort of the way social change happens. It's like lots and lots of drips. Um, and what I'd also say is it also takes lots and lots of stories. Lots of stories that come at issues from various different um, avenues. And so, you know, you need reinforcing stories that you can put through sort of resilient networks to drive long-term systemic change. So one movie and one story is never going to do it. It's more a multitude of stories that come at our challenges or, or that paint a bright, a different future and that come from lots of different places. To bring it back to where we started, you know, talking about our economic system and some of the narratives that drive it, how can you see an opportunity for narrative change to play a role in shifting towards a more sustainable and more inclusive economy? We tell stories that are very humanistic around what inclusivity looks like. So we made RBG, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, and on the basis of sex, it looked at equity in the workplace for women. Um, as I said, Roma, when it comes to domestic workers, we're making a, a, a new film called Polly Murray that is about the great civil rights lawyer, Polly Murray. But the challenge for us in what I'm seeing around climate particularly and around new models for how we organize ourselves, if you will, as human beings, like the institutions that govern our lives, is that we have over the last 30 years, there are a lot of apocalyptic stories about the future. There are a lot of stories that imagine us in spaceships, pushing buttons with no greenery. And I don't know about you, that is not the future that I want to see. And so I'm really hopeful that in the next decade, we will see more stories that imagines a regenerative, green future where more of us are growing our food locally, where there's no such thing as a massive tanker getting stuck in the Suez because we figured out 3D printing and, and recyclable waste being reused to create the things that we need to live. And so... I'm really excited about, you know, artist collectives that are given the prompt of like, imagine what a regenerative future looks like. There's some exciting work that I know you've read too, 
called Rethinking Humanity um, that talks about the age of freedom. And it imagines forward to an age where we're not slaughtering animals for our food um, and where much more of uh, what we need for our local existence comes very locally, that we're not shipping things all over the world. And so that helped me to imagine. That's a report. It helped me to imagine forward. But the more stories that we can um, tell of what the future can look like, the faster we'll be able to get there. Yeah, and that in many ways has motivated this podcast of you know, one of the things that I was observing was a, a lot of critiques of the current system from very different perspectives. Uh, but you started to see patterns. Um, and what I thought was missing was what I think is actually motivational is like a vision for what the future system could look like, you know, hence the name Next Normal. And how can we populate that with the role of business, the role of government, the role of investment, you know, and what's the relationship between you know, people and the planet that's more harmonious than what we have now? Well, I think a lot about this, Amit, and I think about it in the context of my work, which is using storytelling to inspire people to action. I fundamentally believe that you need both grass tops and grassroots, and that the work that, that I'm really excited about at Participant is this insight that storytelling can unlock this sense of purpose inside people, and it is a transformational moment. A great story can transform somebody from being someone who's in their seat to someone who's in the street. It can help to unlock their sense of agency. And I feel that in the future, we are going to need many more people to be unlocking their own individual agency, their sense of individual purpose in the collective, but rather than waiting to be told what to do, which is a very old model of hierarchical sort of management and leadership, how might you contribute to making the world a more interconnected, regenerative place? What is your creativity? What is your special gift that you can bring to bear in this community that we now call Earth, right? This, we, are a glo we are truly a global community. And my hope is that when we were working on uh, Girl Rising, we partnered with Intel. And I like to, I used to joke that anything Intel said, I believed because they are, they are a company that is full of incredibly bright people. Well, one of my colleagues at Intel said, 9% of people are leaders, which leaves 91% of people as what quote unquote followers. And my hope is that our future is one where many, a much higher percentage of the population is actually leading change. And leading change could be that you just change the way you consume and recycle in your home, but really deeply change that, right? That you start to grow more of your own food. You start to buy less. You, you, you cut your Amazon cord kind of thing. You buy more locally. The more people that we can have participating in creating the world we want to see, the better chances we'll get to achieving a more connected, regenerative, uh, fairer, just place. I remember in, in graduate school, someone had pointed out how we conflate leadership with authority. Um, so we think that only people in positions of authority, whether it's I don't know, a mayor, a governor, a you know, head of state, CEO, you know, attending physician, whatever the right way to think about it is, um, that that is what leadership is. And yes, they have formal authority. They may have formal powers and control over resources. But I, you know, I love this view of like thinking about agency, you know, for anyone and, and leadership that anyone can take on for themselves and driving their own, you know, the progress they want to see in the world. 
That's right. It's really a, a new paradigm of participation, if you will, right? What does it mean to participate in connecting, participating in building a better future for all of us together, participating in regenerative practices, right? We are all going to need to be participating in new ways, and the world allows that. Education, for example, is far easier to come by uh, for everybody than it used to be. And so many of the barriers that, that used to make it imperative to have authority to be a leader are, are gone, right? And so I love that insight, Amit, about the difference between authority and leadership, because I do think that leadership and participation are the ticket to the future. And how do you think about, you know, with, with that in mind, how you direct or kind of engage people in your movies? Obviously, movies are, are you know, very accessible, you know, as, as things go. And, and, you know, lots of people see them, lots of people enjoy them. Um, you also mentioned how you use targeted screenings to help engage people of influence in certain ways. And so, you know, that thing with, you know, the grassroots and the grass tops or whatever, you know, big institutions versus kind of ordinary folks, so to speak. How do you think about like how you target your own strategy around those you know, different ways of engaging or driving social change? So I'll give you a great example, which is our film, John Lewis, Good Trouble, that came out this summer that profiled U.S. Congressman John Lewis, who had spent his life as a civil rights activist and then was a very important congressional leader in our country. His legacy is really as a champion for voter enfranchisement. So fighting against disenfranchisement, which primarily in the South affects people of color. And so we targeted well before it became the battleground state that it ultimately ended up being, we targeted Georgia um, for a lot of that, that work around the film. And so what we did is we brought this film with its beautiful film poster and iconic images of John Lewis, and we connected with local organizations, Black Voters Matter, vote writers, who were working on the ground to try to enroll and to increase voter participation in the election, in the 2020 election. And we hosted 60 virtual screenings and a couple of drive-ins, actually actually. Um, and we use the film to create bridges between these community activists and the sort of uh, cultural influence of Hollywood and to create momentum for their work. Um, and through that work across the country and in Georgia, one of our goals was to send voter registration forms to folks who hadn't registered to vote. And we sent 54,000 supported by members of the community. And so on the institutional side, we actually also partnered with the NBA. Uh, and the NBA has a different kind of cultural influence. And we created the John Lewis Good Trouble Trophy uh, to enroll voters at the Atlanta Hawks and some other NBA teams rallied around. And so what we're always trying to do is figure out how we can build bridges between the sort of culture uh, tool that we have and the activism on the front line um, and use our film, as it were, as a Trojan horse. So here's this exciting event that you can be a part of, and here's the activism that we can enroll you in afterwards. You know, it's it's incredibly powerful way of you know explaining how you reach with and connect with so many different types of people. And you know, one thing I want to bring in is also you spoke about this a little bit around Roma is the the international aspect of this. You know, we we have a global audience for the podcast, and movies you know, go all around the world. Um, you know, it's you know stating the obvious, but how do you think about like narrative change in a global media market and a, you know with a global kind of fan base for your films? 
So currently, our capacity is still quite limited to the United States in terms of our really deep campaign work. We do some campaigning with the European Union and with Parliament, the UK Parliament. We did actually campaign the film Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, that was, again, another Netflix story that told the story of William Kumquamba, who built these amazing windmills and brought water to his village. We campaigned that film uh, with partners across some parts of Malawi and uh, South Africa and some other countries in, in Africa. But when it comes to storytelling at the global scale, you know, because we're, we're involved in it together, Imperative 21, um, a coalition of coalitions that, of folks who are thinking about resetting what it looks like to reset an economy for well-being and a, on a healthy planet, shared well-being on a healthy planet. And we're thinking a lot in that context of how can we create media tools that can be used all around the world to create an appetite, to create the demand for change locally. So one way to think about it is through global icons. I look at Priyanka Chopra as someone who I worked with on Girl Rising and who I continue to um, obviously follow and be in touch with. You know, India is currently in the throes of a COVID crisis. It is not a surprise to me that Priyanka is tweeting about it. Is she Sorry, she's on Instagram about it every single day. She is a global movie star and actress, and she is also a global humanitarian. Um, and so folks like that who have that kind of global presence have a role to play. So do institutions, the UN. You know, I'm a great believer that the, there's a role for the UN as a distribution ecosystem for both projects and funding, but also through storytelling. And how might we create other kinds of ecosystems that are really narrative network distributors for these ideas, for these stories? And that's the promise of Imperative 21 is that it's a, a network of, it can become a narrative network, if you will, that we can put great stories through that narrative network and they can reach business leaders and communities around the world. No, that's great. And I love that idea of like a narrative network. And, and I want to pick up on that important campaign uh, that you referenced that Imperative 21 has been leading around resetting the economy. And you know, ask the tough question now, of course, which is, what is your vision? Or, you know, if you can paint the picture of what a transformed system would look like, you kind of like, what is the end goal of these efforts? So what do we want to reset to? And, and what would that feel like to live in that world? So I always go to the highest order of what it would feel like. So for me, it's a shifting from, I must have more to I have enough winner takes all into a, a shift of actually, if my community is not thriving, I'm not thriving to a primacy of money, to a primacy of love, a primacy of domination, to a primacy of connection, contribution. Um, how much are you contributing um, as a, a metric for your success versus how much are you worth? So, you know, I'm pretty meta in the way I think about these things um, because I think everything is your belief system, right? If I think more shoes are going to make me more happy, I'm going to buy more shoes. But if I actually think that more connections with my friends is going to make me happy and literally richer as a human being, I'm not going to buy the shoes. I'm going to have a cup of tea. And having a cup of tea is a lot better for the earth than buying a new pair of shoes. And so we really have to shift our paradigms for how we measure things, which is, of course, why the work that you do is so important. Because until we're actually measuring the cost of extraction-based economies, until we're measuring 
measuring the cost of things like loneliness, until we're measuring the cost of homelessness and poverty, we're actually not measuring the cost to society, right? It's an incomplete equation. And so as we are become more interconnected as, as societies and as literally our natural resources run out, and as the gulfs of inequality grow, we're sort of back to the where we started with this conversation, which is that's not good for anyone. And so what might it look like to shift up the prioritization of our values? It makes sense that that's kind of what you're focused on, given the work that you do, because I think ultimately narrative changes around you know, shifting belief structures and understanding and values and a lot of people who are experts in systems change feel like that's the hardest lever to pull, but the most powerful one if you can pull it. And I think that certainly resonates with me. And so um, you know, before we close, I do want to ask you our lightning round questions um, <laughs> just to uh, you know, get some tips for people who have been intrigued by the work that you do. You know, As you think about systemic change, what leader are you watching around the world? So the leader that I've been taking a lot of inspiration from recently is someone we share as a friend and colleague, Hadla Thomas Dottier, uh, who is the CEO of the B Team. And I have been really inspired by just working with her directly in terms of her vision for what's possible in the world and her ability as a leader to package that vision into a story that is sticky uh, because that's actually back to the pl place of like, how do you change systems? So we need sticky stories that people buy into. Um, and also as a woman, her courage running for the president of Iceland when she had no chance, you know, like she was a real outsider. And and the fact that she is now leading this sort of group of, of real icons of leadership, if you will, in the B team, we need more of that kind of coming together and collaboration around a, a vision that comes from a place of folks who've already achieved great results, leaning into this call to action around something new being both possible, but urgent. What is the single best book that you can recommend on the themes of narrative change or systemic change? Well, so this is not so much about narrative change, but it's really the book that rocked my world about two years ago. Um, and it's called Regenerative Leadership, the DNA of Life-Affirming 21st Century Organizations. And it's by Giles Hutchkins and Laura Storm. And it was, for me, a real articulation of what a new leadership paradigm could look like. And I'm someone who really likes sort of frameworks and clarity around, okay, what has to shift for this to be possible? And the one thing that we know about racial justice, the one thing we know about a sustainable future, regenerative anything, is that it's not one and done. There's no box you can check. It's actually a practice and it's a new way of being. It's a totally new paradigm. And so um, this book, Regenerative Leadership, really lays out what that new paradigm can look like and how you can bring that into your organization. If you could recommend that we interview only one more person on this topic, who would it be? Well, I loved talking to Massimo Portincaso, who was part of the Rethinking Humanity essay. He's a former BCG consultant, and he's working with another sort of design thinker, Mickey McManus, and they're both really thinking about how do you go from theory 
of this kind of systems change to actually operationalizing it within the business community. Um, and the business community, like economies drive the world. There's a lot of entrepreneurship that's happening, which is fantastic, you know, like Beyond Meat and all sorts of different kinds of ways and rethinking how we make all of our products, 3D printing, the whole thing. But until and less than until companies who I think now have the appetite to make the change have a clear pathway for what that looks like, we won't get there. And so we need design thinkers, we need creatives to come together with the folks who operationalize these massive systems to be working much more together and to create iteration loops. Um, and that's what Massimo and, and Mickey are, are really thinking about. How do we close the gap between the big ideas and the, and the folks who are in the leadership seats? Well, I, I think that's something that I imagine many of our listeners are trying to do. So it's a great recommendation for many reasons. And you know, Holly, I, I so appreciate your time with us here today. You know, there's so much about our conversation that I, I really appreciate. I, I think, you know, that this comment you made up front about the role of like you know, creatives and entrepreneurs about helping us see around corners um, and how do we kind of use stories to help shift the way we think about things and help uh, shift the way we see ourselves in relation to one another in relationship to, you know, the earth and the planet and nature. I think it's so important at this time when we have so much in flux we're in a state of, you know, of the world where we need new narratives. You know, I think we're coming to realize that the narratives that have gotten us this far are not the ones that are going to carry us forward. So I'm so grateful for the work that you do and for the time that you've given us here today. Thanks, Ahmed. I really appreciate being here. And if I had one challenge for anyone who's in a position of leadership, it's to lean into new long-term narratives. So as you're doing your strategic planning, we often plan quarter by quarter and we plan a lot of strategic communications. Uh, what should we say this quarter about the work that we're doing? But I would challenge those who are thinking about our, the long-term survival of our planet to lift up and think about what is the long-term story we want to be telling um, and start to really ground that with your community because it's that long-term story that will get us where we need to go. Well, and that, you know, I think it's such an important point because, you know, we're in a moment where everything pulls us into the short term, um, the way that media is, the news cycle, social media, you know, the crisis of the pandemic shortens our time horizons. But when we think about how we emerge from it, of course, we need to, to stretch our horizons to think about, you know, how the choices we make today, you know, help pave the way for a much better future down the line. And how we tell a story of possibility. Exactly. Right? How do we tell a story of possibility? Because yeah. it is possible. We are extraordinary uh, beings. Yeah. And it's all possible. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And it's a perfect note to end on. So, Holly, thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Amit. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. Uh, please subscribe to this podcast and share your thoughts about Holly's vision for our next normal on social media. Our next normal community knows that money can do so much more than just make more money. And with your help, we're aiming to show the world just how we can do so. Until next time, take care and stay safe.